Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and a special guest. This week, Dustin Lance Black. On Defining Marriage, we trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage and how fighting for marriage, in turn, changed them. Chapter 11 I don't really know how it's going to work. Juan first spotted Tim at Disneyland. It was gay days in October of 2007, and Juan was there with a group of friends. An unofficial annual event organized by entrepreneurial members of the gay community, Gay Days draws thousands of LGBTs to the park over the course of a weekend. When Tim passed by in a group of his own friends, Juan turned his head to look him up and down and said, Who's that cute redhead? before they went their separate ways. Eight months passed. Juan, 35, lived in Fresno near his family, avoiding contact with them as much as possible. Instead, he focused on his work at a local mom-and-pop advertising agency. There wasn't much else for him to do. Fresno was a sleepy farming county with a meager gay scene, stuck halfway between most of California's major attractions while lacking any attractions of its own. Tim, 32, lived 60 miles up California State Highway 99 in a splatter-shaped town called Merced, between Chowchilla and Modesto. An Arkansas native, he moved to California's Central Valley with his family and had recently started working on a nursing degree. Though he loved being near his family, he spoke to his mother several times a day, Merced's gay scene was limited to a few guys who might wave hello if they happened to see each other shopping at the grocery outlet on Main Street. By day, Tim took prerequisites at Merced College with his niece, and when he needed to relax, he'd drive an hour down to Fresno and its two or three gay-friendly bars. In May of 2008, Juan found himself drunk and annoyed at a gay men's professional mixer at a Fresno Aztec restaurant. He'd started attending the mixers about a year ago at the suggestion of his roommate. The group met once a month, and for a while, Juan was happy to find himself making new friends and growing his social circle. But after a few months, his new friends started drifting away. At the May mixer, he saw no familiar faces and decided that it would be his last. But when Tim walked in, he turned Juan's head again. Who is that handsome man? Juan asked, not yet recognizing him from their momentary passing eight months earlier. He stared for a minute, then decided that Tim was way out of his league, and that he was better off getting drunk and hiding. For his part, Tim was there on a date, though he didn't know it. His friend Kevin had invited him to the mixer with romantic intentions, but Tim assumed that they were just there as friends. After all, he reasoned, Kevin was way out of his league. Tim and Juan might never have crossed paths if Juan hadn't followed through on his plan to get completely drunk. What the hell, he dizzily thought as the night wore on. I'm drunk, I should say hello to the hot redhead. The actual introduction was something of a blur. Trying to recall the night they met, Juan admitted, We were just there for the booze, right? Pretty much, said Tim. That's why I don't remember. Within a few months, Juan had met all of Tim's family. They were a big clan, tight-knit and affectionate. Dates often consisted of trips to Barnes & Noble with Tim's mom, not exactly the height of romance, but Juan, who was estranged from his parents, found the familiar closeness comforting. Tim was head over heels. I had no secret I wanted to keep from him, he recalls. I always felt safe. His last few relationships weren't completely healthy. He had a tendency to imitate his boyfriends, nervously self-censoring to win their approval. His exes were older, rugged men, cowboys and cops, who liked Tim well enough as long as he didn't need anything from them. But with Juan, it was different. He could talk about his liberal politics, which was often a deal-breaker in the conservative Central Valley. Juan didn't judge Tim's sprawling neck-to-pubes tribal tattoo. 
There was nothing off-limits, Tim marveled. He just takes things in stride and wants to know more. For the first time in a relationship, I just had this urge to be honest. In September of 2008, they started planning their wedding. They were four months into their relationship, but neither of them could imagine life apart. Marriage was the only thing that made sense, Tim said. The plan was to wait until spring, when Tim's brother returned from serving in Iraq and could serve his best man, just as Tim had done for him. A family-heavy wedding was non-negotiable for Tim, but for Juan it was a bit more problematic. His family still struggled with his homosexuality. Tired of waiting for their struggle to be over, he'd cut them out of his life. Fortunately, Tim's mother, Anne, took Juan under her wing. Anne was one of a kind. Born in New York, she met Tim's dad in San Francisco in the early 60s, and then moved to Arkansas to be close to his family. A liberal transplant from New England and the West Coast, she soon found herself marching through the Deep South in support of desegregation. She joined the labor movement and the National Organization for Women, serving as a local spokeswoman. In Tim's eyes, Anne was a heroine. She's the kind of woman who burned a bra in the 60s and never wore one again, he said. Anne loved Juan, the man who made her son so happy. And the rest of the family took a shining to him as well. For the first time, they saw Tim had stopped trying to change himself for his partner. His nephew Mike took Tim aside after a family gathering and told him, I think he's the Juan. But Juan's family didn't even know Tim existed, which is exactly how Juan wanted it. He was raised Mormon and struggled with guilt and self-loathing for years. We were Christmas and Easter sort of Mormons when I was young, he said, but as he got older, his mother grew increasingly devout. Juan tried again and again to convince himself that he was straight, never with any success. Gradually, he fell away from the church. At 20, exasperated by the homophobic rhetoric and improbable planetary mythology, he decided he'd had enough. Juan separated himself from his family and decided that for his sanity, he'd have to strike out on his own. Maybe that was the bond that Tim and Juan shared, spending years trying to please others before giving up in frustration to focus on their own well-being. It was only when they had started looking after themselves that they were ready to fall in love with each other. Marriage was, for the moment, legal. While Juan and Tim grew closer, 18,000 gay and lesbian couples got married in the span of just a few months, hundreds every week. Wedding invitations were constant, venues were overflowing, and jewelry shops could barely keep up with demand. The state's florists and bakers were in a state of exhausted crisis. Juan and Tim were sure Prop 8 wouldn't pass, and that they could marry in the spring when Tim's brother returned. There was just the small matter of telling Juan's mom. They weren't quite sure whether she would be on board. When Juan stopped by the house for a rare visit, he reminded her, please don't forget to vote no on 8. Oh, they told me to vote yes, she said, meaning officials at her church. They looked at me specifically. Tim's mother, meanwhile, was holding a no on 8 sign on a street corner, marching with P-Flag. In fact, the Mormon church was a key driver of support for Proposition 8. Its governing leader sent a letter to every congregation in the state with orders to read it out loud. Do all you can to support the proposed constitutional amendment by donating of your means and time, a bishop read to the Fresno congregation on June 29. Our best efforts are required to preserve the sacred institution of marriage. Mormons donated $20 million to support the ballot measure and comprised 80% to 90% of the campaign's door-to-door -door volunteers. Still, Juan was sure there's no way California voters could take away their marriage. They couldn't. Could they? When Election Day finally rolled around, Juan took the afternoon off to vote, then visited his mother, who was recovering in the hospital from a kidney operation. Juan wore an I Voted sticker, but made no mention of the vote. Or of Tim. She still didn't know he existed. When Juan got home from the hospital, he called Tim, who was 60 miles north, in Merced. On the phone together, they checked election returns, clicking to refresh them until long after midnight. Proposition 8, the measure to stop their wedding in its tracks, looked unstoppable now. 
Tim gazed glumly at the results. Maybe their marriage wouldn't be happening soon after all. Well, one thought, it's looking pretty bleak. Now they'd probably have to settle for a ceremony and a civil union, something marriage-ish, without being the real thing. The first thing Juan did when he woke up the next morning was check the election returns. The votes weren't fully counted, but it was clear that Prop 8 was about to pass if it hadn't already. Marriage was gone, and with it, their wedding. But Juan had an idea. The results weren't official yet. What if they could find a clerk who was still issuing licenses? He called Tim. Tim, he said, would you like to wait till the spring when your brother gets here so we can have a make-believe wedding? He paused. Or do you want to get a legal wedding today? Instantly, Tim said, yes. Really? Juan said, for real? You're serious? Oh no, we're not doing marriages today, said the Fresno County Clerk. One by one, Juan had been calling every Central California clerk's office. Local officials seemed to consider Prop 8 officially passed, and with that, weddings in California were over. Overnight, they'd gone from being fiancés to simply boyfriends, unwelcome once again in the institution of marriage. That is, until he called the Merced office in Tim's hometown. The woman on the phone assured him that they'd continue offering licenses all day, even as he watched local news reports out of the corner of his eye, indicating that the marriages were over. But, the clerk told him, they wouldn't be able to conduct any weddings at the courthouse. Juan and Tim would need to stop by the office to sign a form, then find an officiant somewhere nearby, and then return to drop off the completed paperwork. They had to act fast before the clerk realized that hers was the only office still issuing licenses. The official vote count was up to 68%. Juan scrambled to his job, a little ad agency in town called eDesign. Juan explained to his boss that he had to leave work early so he could try to get married. Oh my god, his boss exclaimed, pushing Juan out the door. Go, go right now! Juan scrambled to his car and zoomed up the 99 towards Merced. He was about an hour away, with 72% of the votes counted. Meanwhile, Tim was on the phone with his mother. Years ago, when she remarried, she had called Tim to ask facetiously if he'd like to be a flower girl. Now he picked up the phone and asked her the same. Mom? How do you feel about being a flower girl? Anne was on board, but she knew it wouldn't be easy to track down an efficient on a moment's notice. Their Methodist pastor, who would ordinarily have leapt at the chance, was out of town. They had just a few hours to find someone else and arrange a wedding. Anne met the boys at the courthouse, and they walked into the clerk's office as a family. Their hearts were in their throats as they approached the counter as calmly as they could, but as far as the clerk was concerned, it was a day like any other. You have a month to return your marriage license, the county clerk recited from memory, but... She trailed off, looking at the two men. I don't really know how it's going to work. Nobody did. No state had ever re-banned marriage. There was no way to know if the 18,000 couples who had married over the summer would still be recognized, let alone these two guys who had applied a day after the election. Glancing at his phone, Juan saw the vote count at 78%. He filled out the forms as fast as he could. As Juan scribbled his information into the tiny boxes, Tim kept hunting for someone who could officiate a last-minute wedding. He lucked out when he finally reached his friend, Kevin, who had gotten ordained online. They raced to meet him at his job, a Marriott hotel in downtown Merced. They met him in the lobby behind the reception desk. It was Kevin's first marriage, and he knew time was short as he filled out the remainder of the forms. At one point, he wrote their names wrong and had to wipe them out and try again. It wasn't much of a ceremony, not any ceremony really, but at least the forms were complete, and the couple dashed to their car and sped back to the courthouse. Dismayed, the clerk looked at the papers and explained that she couldn't accept forms that had whiteout. There was a moment of panic. But the clerk was on their side at this point. She calmed the couple down, reprinted the forms, and sent them back on their way, assuring them there was still time. When Juan and Tim dashed back into the hotel lobby, Kevin wasn't alone. Anne was there, and so were three nieces, four or five friends, Juan's boss Eric, who had driven up from Fresno. They had all come to see the last wedding in California.
This time, Kevin ushered the tiny wedding party into an empty conference room. He unfolded a crinkled sheet of paper to read a short speech, wanted him improvised vows and exchanged rings that they'd bought that morning, Irish clotter rings that matched one Tim's brother had given him. They'd planned an elaborate springtime wedding with flowers and a band and a long ceremony and an adoring crowd, but now here they were, getting married in a fluorescent-lit Marriott conference room. All they needed was each other, their love, and the kiss at the end of a vow. The vote count was at 98.5% when they dashed back through the door, slapped their unwhited-out forms on the counter, and for the first time that day took a deep breath and relaxed. Then they took everyone out for ice cream. So why bother with the paperwork? If they could strip away the elaborate ritual, the endless speeches, and the guest list, what was so important about racing against the clock to file a form? For Juan and Tim, the state-sanctioned marriage was a moment of transformation. Standing in the conference room, frazzled and impatient, they stopped being boyfriends and turned into husbands. They had always thought that it would happen with fanfare and grandeur, but their split-second wedding forced them to focus on what really mattered, on who really mattered, and how their lives changed when joined together. They didn't know for sure how this license was going to work. Neither did the clerk, or the state, or thousands of other couples who, just like them, had married over the last few months. The day after Prop 8 passed, there was no telling what would come next. But now, they'd face it as a single entity. Not just partners, not just a cute couple, not just two people in love, but as one flesh, capable of achieving what seemed impossible just a few hours before. Sure, the papers mattered, but not nearly as much as the transformation of their mutual love into a single bond. It was an agreement that although they had no idea what was coming next, they were committed to facing it together. Now we can commence opening banter. We can begin the beguine. Yes. What is a beguine? Uh, it's a little sauce that you put on duck. Ugh. At the start of this week's episode, you teased the listeners. You promised them a chat with Dustin Lance Black, and I'm afraid I have a confession to make. Oh, no. I am not Dustin Lance Black. That's true. You haven't been. You I are not now, and you never will be. I could try harder. So, just to be clear to newcomers to the podcast... You are James, my partner. But Lance will be joining us. I had a lovely Skype chat with him uh, just a few days ago. Uh, we talked all about uh, milk and winning marriage equality through the Prop 8 case and, and all that kind of stuff. The movie milk, not your lactose intolerance. No, that didn't come up, strangely enough. It comes up in so many conversations. It does. Why does it come up? It comes up in many ways. It's wreaked a lot of havoc. Yeah, it's a destructive influence on our life, and I'm opposed. Love is a positive influence. It certainly is. It certainly is. And I have a delightful love story to present this week because uh, uh, Lance had some very exciting news. As, as the world has you know, found out in the past 24 hours, I'm engaged now. Just to be clear, who was that? My name is Dustin Lance Black. Uh, and most people know me as a writer of film and television, but I also produce and direct. And truly, I've spent uh, the past half decade putting those efforts on hold to fight for LGBT equality. And so you remember a few years ago uh, when Lance won the Academy Award for writing the movie Milk? I had that lovely speech up on stage when he won. Uh, here's a little clip of it. When I was 13 years old, my beautiful mother and my father moved me from a conservative Mormon home in San Antonio, Texas, to California, and I heard the story of Harvey Milk. And it gave me hope. It gave me the hope to live my life. It gave me the hope to one day I could live my life openly as who I am, and that maybe even I could fall in love and one day get married. 
So that was 2009, and I talked to Lance last week. It was the day after he and Tom Daly, the diver, announced that they were engaged. It's so funny. I I said it on the Oscar stage. There's two things I said. I said full federal equality, and we have that now in terms of marriage. I also said that one day I hoped I'd be able to fall in love and get married. I never dreamed that in that time I would uh, meet somebody and fall in love and get engaged. I just never knew if uh, that was going to be in my, you know, something I'd be able to appreciate in my own lifetime, honestly. And it's one thing to appreciate a dream in an abstract sense, like this would be lovely if it actually happened, but it probably won't. And it's so different when it actually happens. Like when Lance met Tom. It was at a party, and Tom tells a story about how he managed to grab Lance's phone and leave a message in the notes with the words, call me, and his phone number. I met someone who completely gets me, thinks some of my faults are really funny, and is completely annoyed with others. <laughs> I feel the same about him. Um, I definitely know that we're better for having each other. Uh, we dream bigger. Uh, thing, things seem so much more possible uh, together. You know, two and a half years in, and it still feels like every day is a, is a dream. And we want something bigger than just ourselves. You know, that's one of the big reasons I fought for marriage. You know, sometimes you have dreams that you're too shy to share even with your close friends. (laughs) But you might share them with someone who you have true intimacy with. And in sharing those dreams, you know, whether it be a film or, or, or moving into theater or something brand new, you breathe possibility into them. Listen, I grew up Mormon. I'm not, I'm not Mormon now, but I still, you know, you can take the boy out of the church, but I still want to have a lot of kids. And the possibility of having a family and a big family and a messy family, uh, you know, that, that sounds so joyful to me and wasn't something I imagined I'd be able to do on my own. I think that's one of the really lovely things about finding that person that you're like, oh, I can share my life with them, that uh, suddenly you have all these dreams that that life is breathed into. And that's something that's very familiar to other people around you. There is power in the word, that the word is understood by society. And it means that when you say, I'm married or getting married, it's a promise you make to the person you love. And I think that promise uh, creates so much and, and built and creates so much potential and, and is understood by so many people. We're going to hear more from Lance next week uh, when we're talking about the work they did on the trial and the protests that followed Proposition 8's passage. I look forward to that. Well, good. It's, it's going to be pretty interesting, actually. He told me some stuff about the, the post-Prop 8 protests that uh, I wasn't aware of. Um, uh, he played a, a more pivotal role in all of the protests and street actions and demonstrations than, than I previously realized. Excellent. Well, now we move into question time, Prime Minister. Yes, yes. But before we do, I would like to issue a trigger warning. Okay. During this question and answer period, we may be talking about marriage in a sense that does not assume that everybody wants it or that the institution is a universally good thing for everyone. All right. Is is this a trigger warning for the listeners or for me? (laughs) Um, Before we dive into denigrating the institution of marriage, did you get the story behind the neck-to-pubes tribal tattoo? I didn't, as a matter of fact. I'm sorry. Um, Let's assume that it was a mural of Rebecca Romaine Stamos. (laughs) So her entire body over his entire body? Exactly. That's like a human love pillow. It sort of is, yeah, yeah. Which a human kind of is. I suppose. It's just, 
Do you mean it's just a human? Well, it's a human <laughs> with the image of a human on them that you can love. It's a clever disguise. Yeah. Is there something psychological about you accusing a human of being a human that you can love, but it's <laughs> it's purely an illusion? Um, maybe if you got a tattoo of Rebecca Romaine Stamus across your entire body. Do you think that would bring us closer together? I think I would marry it. <laughs> but not me, just the tattoo. Just the tattoo. All right. <laughs> Dustin Lanzaplack's comments uh, kind of dovetail nicely with this chapter. Um, they do. A lot of themes that Tim and Juan expressed, he expressed as well. Um, so one of the things he said is that everybody understands uh, what you mean when you say married or engaged. What does it mean? It means something different to everybody, but the fundamental piece that everyone gets is, oh, those two are together, they like each other, and they're planning to spend a lot of time together. And how does that differ from boyfriend or lover? Or, or consort. There's a suggestion of permanence to it, or at least attempted permanence, that there's an intention for those two parties to commit to them, to commit to each other in a way that is more long-lasting than boyfriends might. I think the word boyfriend carries with it a social suggestion that they're still window shopping. Maybe not window shopping exactly, but that there's a suggestion that they're uh, not 100% sure that this is going all the way to the finish line and that they're still trying it out. It's an audition. And marriage is a a step of commitment. Using that word communicates... All right, this is it. We're you're you're the one that I'm spending the rest of my life with. Obviously, that does not always work out. In fact, it usually does not actually work out. Is that why it's so funny when Frau Blucher refers to her boyfriend? Exactly. Maybe that's the metaphor that we need to <laughs> to make this make more sense to you. Maybe Phyllis Diller is the one who finally it's crystallizes. Absolutely not Phyllis Diller. Phyllis Teen? No. <laughs> What's her name? What's her name? Cloris Leachman. Uh-huh. Who's Phyllis Diller? Oh, she's a comic. She is. She's another funny lady. She certainly is. So is the joke there in Young Frankenstein? Let's Frankenstein. Is it that she is a middle-aged woman referring to her boyfriend? Is that the why it's ridiculous? It's ridiculous because the word boyfriend is associated with youngsters. It's associated with people who uh, are still shopping around and having a good time and necking in the back of drive-ins. That's what kids do these days. Okay, so that brings me to another question. So, okay, boyfriend is ridiculous. But no, no, no. It's not ridiculous. Well, that's uh, what you said. You're on record now. I, I don't think boyfriends are ridiculous. I think the way that socially we use the word boyfriend, what we are communicating is this is someone that I'm interested in but haven't committed to yet. Okay. So boyfriend obviously means something different than marriage. Um, in the chapter, you say that uh, a civil union is something marriage-ish without being a marriage. How does a civil union differ from a marriage if it has all the same legal benefits? So legally, they're fairly indistinguishable, although there are always these little loopholes that they find afterwards that, oh, well, this civil union doesn't convey this or it doesn't convey that. Uh, but one of the important parts of a marriage is the psychological effect of participating in a ritual that is familiar to yourself and familiar to those around you. And when you say to someone, I'm getting civil union or we're in a civil union, you don't experience that same psychological feeling of, oh, we're participating in this thing that everyone understands and everyone knows what this means. 
Okay, uh, but I still don't understand what it means. So what makes a marriage better than being boyfriends or being life partners in a civil union? Why is it a superior state? Because when someone is committed to another person, it is often at a depth and magnitude that is difficult to express through words. And so one way that we have of expressing emotions that are too enormous for us to to convey verbally is to dress them up in an elaborate ritual and participate in something more symbolic. And the marriage is a symbol, a social symbol of the depth of your feelings that feelings that are difficult to express in any other way. So it's like a funeral. Because we could just throw a big pile of meat in the ocean and call it a day, but we instead put flowers on it and sing songs and, I don't know, wave pom-poms. I don't know what you do at a funeral. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. A marriage and a funeral are both ways of understanding and communicating feelings that are too difficult to put into words. There's also, I would say, with marriage, a comfort to uh, the belonging that marriage provides. When you participate in a marriage, uh, you are a part of something very grand and historic and familiar to you. Uh, it's 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 saying that it's a validation that uh, you belong to a group that you wish to be a part of. If, like some people, you're not particularly concerned with being a member of the group, then uh, marriage must seem awfully mystifying. It is a puzzle, because... It- as far as I can see, it doesn't do anything mystical or grand. It just inserts third parties into your relationship. Yes, and that third party, many people welcome. Sure, and I don't get that because it comes with this carrot and stick. It comes with these incentives to stay married and these penalties. Um, I mean, you know, we have no-fault divorce, but still, if you think about the emotional and financial expense, even people who are completely reasonable when it comes to divorce and not just third parties, but now fourth parties with sort of lawyers representing both sides, it gets acrimonious. It gets hateful. It gets nasty. It starts to become about uh, winning sort of the last lap of the relationship. I think breakups are going to be painful no matter what, uh, but obviously they're a lot worse when they're harder to conduct. Yes, breakups are going to hurt no matter what, but most breakups of boyfriends uh, do not involve lawyers coaching the, the parties to win, to try to be victorious and come out on top in, in the breakup. When two people can break up on their own terms, I just feel like, yeah, there's there's certainly plenty of opportunity for hurt feelings and bitterness and acrimony. And, and without some sort of structure, there's also the possibility of real chaos, particularly if there are kids. But I feel like the divorces that I have seen are way worse than unmarried people breaking up. And given that so many marriages end before death, why would you sign up for that? Yeah, so are you asking why would someone want a marriage at all when it makes it harder to end the relationship? Because people have a fantasy that they will never end their relationship. Sure, and I guess another question I have is when you look at the statistics, um, I mean, they don't bode well for marriages in general, that even marriages that don't end in divorce often reach some sort of detente where the people are 
perhaps contemptuous of each other. The marriage becomes an albatross around their neck, dragging them down and making them miserable. And they stay together because of this thing that, you know, the marriage is important. And so they stay together for the sake of the marriage. And again, if there are children, that totally makes sense to me. But, you know, if you combine divorce with the number of marriages that sort of reach this stalemate, I just wonder why you would willingly say, yes, that's for me. A couple who gets married does so with the expectation that they will be together for the rest of their lives, generally. And... Uh, they do not want to consider that that might not be true. What you're describing is the same fallacy that I experienced for many years, that a a marriage is a sort of locking mechanism on the relationship, that getting married makes the relationship stronger. For some people, that is the case. Uh, But it certainly is not a foregone conclusion that getting married improves your relationship with the person. Sure. I mean, there's that thing you hear sometimes, and and it's a trope in any kind of romantic comedy or romantic movie, you know, you find the one and then you've got to lock them down. Mm -hmm. And I find that so gross. It is very hideous. I agree. Um, You know, like, I've actually seen comments on your videos and stuff uh, where people are like, oh, has anyone married you? If not, they better lock you down. That's such an unfortunate phrase. Well, sure. And, And to me, it's like, if I have to get the government to lock you into this relationship, then what is our relationship based on? If moment to moment you're not making the choice to be in the relationship, then what is the foundation of the relationship? I certainly don't think of you as having locked me down. I think of us as having uh, entwined each other in a, in a cage, if anything. <laughs> no, not in a cage. Uh, no, I, I think of us uh, as, as being together of our own volition. Uh, and I'd much rather have that than a locking down of anything. Sure, but do you not think that for a lot of people, that that notion of locking someone into the relationship, I mean, do you think it's always a joke? Or do you think some people really feel like, oh, I better propose to lock this down? Gosh, I hope not. And I'm glad I understand how privileged I am that I've never been in a position to think that way, that I haven't been in a relationship where I'm like, this person might leave me unless we get a ring, and so therefore I need a ring so that they don't leave me. Uh, The thought of that is really stressful to me. And I'm fortunate that I have never been in that position. I hope that most people don't feel that way, but maybe they do. Couples like Juan and Tim uh, reach a point where they're like, we want to get married as a mutual decision. And that is how I would want to reach a decision. That's how I'd want anyone to reach a decision like that, rather than someone saying, oh boy, uh, if I don't do something quick, they're going to leave. So I better do something quick, even though I don't exactly want to. That sounds awful. Sure. Well, I mean, my understanding, both from a legal and from a religious standpoint, because I went to Catholic school, is that it's not a marriage unless both parties enter into it of their own free will. Oh, sure. But there's there's gradations of free will here. There's someone saying, do you want to marry me? And the other person saying like, eh, fine. Well, right. And that's the other thing is that, you know, during your marriage work, you know, often we'd both get the question of why aren't we married? Um, and, you know, I'd say that I don't want to be married. It's just, it's not a thing I want. And often I would not want to go into why, because that just makes people unhappy. But sometimes people would say, oh, but if Matt wants it, shouldn't you do it just to make him happy? Uh, Yeah. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of marriage, because what I want with you more than anything is a relationship that is meaningful to us both. And for me to be in a relationship that is pleasurable only to one of us is not much of a relationship. (laughs) 
Um, the other thing that I would get sometimes is, oh, but with Matt's work, don't you think you should get married just because of the political statement? Jesus, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I mean, probably not. Uh, that's an interesting question. I'll take it under consideration. Yeah. Uh, and g- good grief. I mean, we see what happens when couples get married to make a political statement. Uh, the political statement that is eventually made is they never wanted to get married in the first place. Sure, sure. We are at an incredibly fortunate point in time when we can choose our partner and also choose to leave our partner. You know, and I I don't think everyone enjoys that privilege even today. So why do we need marriage? Personally, my feeling is that what marriage brings to a person is the comfort of participating in a ritual that is familiar and connects them to other people who matter to them. Okay, but are people disconnected? Like, if you had a civil union, would that not be a form of connection? It would be a form, and... Is it an inferior form? Yes. How so? I think that most humans would find it to be a reminder that they were not connected in the same way that they have been brought up to expect. Being told that you are not allowed to use... A word to express something. So if you want to communicate, um, I am in love with and committed to this person and joining my life with them of my own volition, Mm -hmm. and you want to communicate that the thing that we have together has mutually created meaning and is comparable to the mutually created meanings that other people that we care about have created— then the word marriage does that. What civil union carries with it is the reminder that there are people who don't approve of you and people who think that your relationship is inferior. Okay, and so here we come to the heart of equality, that civil union is a reminder of inequality and a reminder that your relationship is less legitimate than a heterosexual relationship. The the psychological impact of participating in something that is being barred from participating in something that is meaningful to you uh is profound well that i totally agree with i mean i think as long as marriage is a thing to remind people who have same-sex relationships that their relationship is inferior to opposite sex relationships um i think that that does real damage i think that does real psychological damage that it is it is a constant reminder that you're second class but let me just follow up on that last point for a second so you know marriage is superior to civil union because it's a reminder because civil union is a reminder of inequality yes do we not have inequality now by having two tiers of romantic relationships where marriage is presumed to be the ideal state that everyone is supposed to be working toward and anyone who is unmarried in whatever configuration of relationship is inferior and constantly reminded that their relationship is inferior to a marriage yes but we're not supposed to talk about that because it challenges our preconceptions and makes people uncomfortable okay fair enough i think you're absolutely right it is a bad thing that there is a segregation of married people as, oh, you've achieved, you've won, you won relationship. And when you're a boyfriend, oh, well, keep trying, you'll get there someday. Yeah, uh, but what are you going to do? Fix society? Fix preconceptions? Well, I mean, we haven't touched on it, and perhaps we shouldn't, but what about those? Because I think with marriage comes the presumption of monogamy. And what about people who aren't interested in a monogamous relationship? Either they can enter into a marriage which will be presumed by 90 plus percent of the population to be a monogamous union or 
they can uh, not. Yeah, and there will be a social stigma attached to people who marry or enter a marriage-like relationship who are not monogamous. Uh, some people will look down their nose at that. A lot of people will look down their nose. I think it's it's an anachronism that that is a uh, considered an element, a requirement of a successful marriage. There's a practical reason. I mean, if you are have procreative ability, and even if you don't, uh, it, I think there, there's a potential for uh, non-monogamy to destabilize a relationship, but there's a potential for monogamy to destabilize a relationship, for heaven's sake. My experience in listening to people who know what they're talking about is that non-monogamy varies couple to couple, but non-monogamy on balance is a good thing. Okay, but when most people are talking about marriage, that is not what they're talking about. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Uh, and that's why I say it's an anachronism. It's a holdover from the time when marriage was a form of controlling people's bodies and enforcing ownership and possession of people. You know, of course, if, if you have, if you consider a, a person a commodity that you have to lock down, uh, then yeah, of course you want to maintain your ownership of it in this sort of despicable way of, of I control your body and I can become jealous of the things that you do with your body. That is something that feels very possessive and potentially destructive. So that being the case, why do you think so many people are eager to enter into a ceremony where they say, you are my one and only, my fulfillment of everything now and forever, never do us part or dabble outside at all? at any time. It's that thing I was talking about. It's participating in a familiar ritual. Uh, if you start changing the rules of the ritual, it's not much of a ritual anymore. Uh, that having been said, people change the rules of rituals all the time, and they're fine. But there's a reluctance, I think, to do that, uh, because nobody wants to be the first one. It's like being the first one to take your pants off at an underwear party. Everyone's standing around, and they're like, oh, well, someone else ought to do this. I want someone else to take their underwear off before I do. And there's got to be a critical mass of people who are like, uh, yeah, sure, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going for it. This is what I want. Uh, and I think there may come a day when enough people say, uh, monogamy, <laughs> no, um, and are just completely open and upfront and honest about it. But until then, there'll be a social stigma and a assumption that monogamy must be a part of a marriage because that's the way we've always done it. Indeed. I gotta say, you've not sold me on what marriage brings to the table that makes a relationship better. I mean, this chapter and Lance's comments would both suggest that marriage provides something. But if it's not monogamy, if it's not assurance or of permanence, if it's not... I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what marriage brings to a relationship that makes it better. I can think of a lot of things that it brings to the table that make a relationship worse, but I can't think of what inserting the state and or the church into your relationship does to improve it. Two things, an expression of emotion and a validation of that emotion. If those two things are things that you are capable of providing yourself, then marriage provides nothing that I can think of. But I don't want, and I don't say that to discount those things, because the expression of an emotion is an incredibly important thing. That is something that people emotionally need. And the validation of their emotional state is something that people emotionally need. Not all people. Many people. Sure. But you talk about how, um, with Tim and Juan, how their lives were changed once they were joined together. And, you know, I, I take that at their word. I don't doubt it. But how? How did getting that paperwork in by the end of the day changed their lives. Emotionally. It had an emotional impact on them that is 
so seductive and validating that people are willing to risk entering a an arrangement that is extremely painful to deconstruct but the the sensation the emotional feeling of uh, we have now participated in this thing and we have created something new the two of us together that expresses how we feel communicates it to other people and al- aligns us with something that has been terribly meaningful for as long as we have been aware of ourselves then uh, that that's what it brings that's what it changes okay and that does not make any sense I understand. To me, you validate and express your emotions yourself. You do that in your relationship. You make loving choices. You make choices about commitment. You express your feelings through what you do, and you do that on an ongoing basis. Having a symbol, having a ring on your finger or a document filed away at a clerk's office, it seems like a sham to me. Because those are things you get swept up in a moment, and you have a lot of feelings, and you submit some paperwork. But, you know, the marriage now exists somewhere in, in a ledger in the IRS, but that's not the relationship. The relationship is what happens in the space between the people, and that's what where the expression happens. And the validation is that every day you wake up making the choice to keep on keeping on. What you have just expressed is the reason that I want to spend the rest of my life with you. No, oh, fiddlesticks. Expressing that is not something that comes naturally to many people. And so marriage is something that comes far more naturally. If you say so. I do. That was not... You weren't saying, I do. <laughs> I oh, tricked you. <laughs> it's the end of the Muppets take Manhattan. <laughs> it is, it like is. Gonzo was supposed to be the minister. <laughs> that is the other reason I want to spend the rest of my life with you. That we can quote the Muppets take Manhattan at each other. I still don't know what a Fresno Aztec restaurant is, but I think that we have uh, denigrated the institution of marriage enough. We certainly have. Uh, so that is the end of my questions. Are you kidding me? Unless you have questions for me. What's your problem? Ha! <laughs> Where to begin? <laughs> Which brings me to our comment this week. Yes. Uh, listeners, uh, if you uh, have comments on the podcast, please tweet at me, at Matt Baum, or leave a review on iTunes. I was I was glib, I'll admit. I'm sorry. I was a, I was a nasty Nelson with my trigger warning at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but we have a review this week from Floyd Pentland. Uh, it says, While it is well done, the fact that Matt himself isn't able to get married because his partner doesn't believe in marriage is a horrible paradox. I believe that everyone deserves a happy marriage, and his partner's continual denigration of the institution is sad and totally inappropriate for the overarching message of this podcast is trying to deliver. Uh, I'm legitimately grateful for the feedback. Um, I am too. I'm sorry. I I cannot help but be a dick. <laughs> Matthew knows this, but uh, <laughs> listeners, that is the case. I cannot help but be a dick. Look, so I, I hope that our conversation today helped clarify exactly why we're not married. So I told a bit of a fib when I said I was out of questions, because let me ask you some follow-up questions on this. Are you unable to get married? No, no, I could get, I could break up with you and get married to somebody else. Yeah, that is um, entirely true. If being married was more important to you than being in this relationship, then I would expect you to prioritize... And I would expect you to go get married. Yeah, I've thought about it. I don't know if I ever told you that, but I did. Um, Yeah, you look, I mean, I'm not, the fact that I'm not ball and chain, the fact that I'm not locked down means that if at any point I was like, I really would like to be in a a ball and chain relationship, uh, I could say, see ya, and it wouldn't be much fun. But, uh, you know, I could decide uh, at at any point in the what? 
many years that we've been together, I could have said, mm, that's enough. Well, and early on, um, very early on in our relationship, I would always say that I didn't want to be married. And you would say that you did. And I'd say, well, then if that's important to you, I'm not the right person. It was important to me. And you turned out to be the right person for other reasons. Oh, I see. Uh, well, that brings me to another question. Do you feel like you're living in a horrible paradox? <laughs> uh, yes, in an, as much as um, uh, I'm one of those door knocker riddles that yeah. I must always speak the truth, but I can also, if someone's asked me if I'm telling a lie. Do you feel like you're making a huge sacrifice to be in this relationship? Do, do you pine for marriage? Uh, that's a decision I had to make. Um, at, there was a point where I was saying, do I want to be in this relationship if it means sacrificing getting married. And the decision I made was, yes, yes, I do want to be in this relationship. I am willing to sacrifice having a marriage. Because when I think about it, my reasons for having a marriage are essentially, um, it would make a lot of other people happy. And that's not good enough. I mean, I think that's a terrible reason to get married. Um, and I think it's a reason why a lot of people do. But uh... I, I, I honestly, I don't think <laughs> I don't think making other people happy is a bad reason to do things in general. But as a reason for completely rearranging your life, spending $30,000 and uh, putting yourself at risk of um, being trapped with an albatross. Uh, no, don't do that. Well, I think if the foundation, you, you know, yeah. a lot of people talk about their marriage being the bedrock of their relationship. If the bedrock is you did it, you know, to make your, your mom is yeah. happy. Um, yeah, that's going to end well. Um, that having been said, uh, I, I love my relatives and I would do lots of things to make my relatives happy because I love them. Do you feel like you're rationalizing right now? Do you think this is all uh, some kind of head game you're playing with yourself? No, this is a the product of a more than decades long conversation. Uh, that would be a long time to be rationalizing and, and playing head games and telling stories. And that's what a lot of marriages are. Oh, I suppose that's true, yeah. Decades uh, of rationalizing. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I loathe the idea of lying to myself and sometimes that is uh, a harmful trait because lying to yourself is very comforting um but i don't think i'd be able to keep it up have i been gaslighting you well that's possible <laughs> well on marriage specifically oh. uh, have i been flashing a little ring in front of you and then making it disappear hypnotizing me i don't know if that's exactly gaslighting but the point is no we're uh, mixing all kinds of things we sure are uh we have examined marriage from every possible angle, possibly more than any couple ever has in history. And, I mean, my thoughts on marriage uh, have been intensive over the last decade or so, from examining it for myself to examining it as a social institution. And so I feel very comfortable in the assertion that I understand exactly what it is I want and what it is I am happy to go without. So I'm totally inappropriate for the overarching message of this podcast, uh, which makes me wonder, what is the overarching message of this podcast? That marriage means something different to everyone, and everyone is able to define marriage. And uh, Floyd, the commenter, said that everyone deserves to have a happy marriage. And I think that's close to the truth. But what's closer is that everyone has the right to decide what marriage is for themselves and to choose whether or not they want to be in one. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, marriage equality is about the freedom to choose not to be married. Uh, until marriage equality was legal across the country, people in same-sex relationships didn't have a choice. That choice was already made for them. And now they have the same choice anyone else does, which brings it into parity. So if someone wants to get married, terrific. And if they don't, terrific. But at least now we have the choice. It's not being made for us. 
has this entire recording, this entire episode been a lead up to you leaving me? What? No. <laughs> You're making the choice now to be like, so long. No, no. choice not to be married. Oh, wait, there's a difference? There's a difference between okay. choosing not to be married and choosing not to have a person in your life? Like I said, I can't help but be a dick. This is useful and constructive feedback, and I'm really glad we got the comment. Um, but I also have to be an asshole about it. That's true. That's, that's why I love you. So if people want to learn more about the overarching message of the book Defining Marriage, uh, where could they find it to read ahead? Uh, you can get the book on Amazon. You search for Defining Marriage, and uh, you can leave a little comment for me there as well. Oh, here's a review. It's from J. Scott Coatsworth. Matt knows his S asterisk 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 about marriage equality and LGBT rights. I run Marriage Equality Watch, where we report on LGBT rights every day, and Matt has been right there with us doing a weekly video report on the ups and downs of the fight. Buy this book. Indeed. Yay! Thank you, J. Scott Coatsworth. Uh, that is fantastic. Uh, he's been a huge supporter of my work on their site, uh, Marriage Equality Watch and Purple Unions, where they uh, write all about what's happening with marriage equality. Although there's not a lot to write about these days, so it's more about uh, what's just happening with the queers. Oh, those queers. Uh, and what's coming up next week on oh, Marriage? Next week we come out of the closets and into the streets. Uh, protests and actions and rallies and shouting, uh, and also more Dustin Lance Black. Oh, hooray. Yes. And in the meantime, you can check out some of my other projects. There's The Sewers of Paris, which is my other podcast about the entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. I've got some lovely Halloween-y stuff coming up in October. And uh, you can also find my YouTube videos where I talk about LGBT issues and entertainment. That's at youtube.com slash mattbaum, M-A-T-T-B-A-U-M-E. Big thanks to Dustin Lance Black for chatting with me for this chapter and a few of the upcoming chapters. And until next time, friends, by the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast... Over.